Hi everybody, this is Zhang, founder of Nhà Zhang Yoga, a community that focuses on yoga, wellness, and other activities that help unite body, mind, spirit. And you are listening to Nhà Zhang podcast. This is a series Zhang loves books, and today I am sharing uh, chapter nine uh, of the book love, Learning True Love by Sister Chen Kong. So let's get started. Learning True Love by Sister Chen Kong. The war escalates. Chapter Nine. Man is not our enemy. In 1966, thousands of Buddhists demonstrated for the free election of a national assembly and a fully elected government. I remember seeing a photo in the Saigon newspaper of thousands of soldiers joining their palms in front of Thầy Tam Châu and Thầy Chi Quang. The caption read, Soldiers in Da Nang listened to two monks preaching for an elected government. The officers of Prime Minister Nguyen Cao Kỳ must have reported to him that his own soldiers of Buddhist background had joined the demonstrations calling for free elections. Under increased pressure from the U.S. and from the leadership of his own Republic of South Vietnam Army, Nguyen Cao Kỳ agreed to hold elections. The Buddhists were elated. Many who had been demonstrating believed that Buddhists should run their own candidates. But suddenly, Cao Kỳ sent troops to central Vietnam and arrested many of the Buddhist candidates. Thousands of Buddhist leaders, among them senior officers in the National Army, were jailed. It was a most discouraging turn of events. A grave split in the Buddhist church occurred. Thầy Tam Châu was a monk who came from North Vietnam and was very afraid of communists. Nguyễn Cao Kỳ also came from the North. And the Buddhist candidates who were from the North or were disciples of Thầy Tam Châu were not arrested. The Buddhist candidates from Central Vietnam, Huế, Đà Nẵng, Quảng Nam and nine other provinces All were arrested. Thầy Chi Quang cabled Thầy Tam Châu, who was attending a conference in India and asked him to come back to discuss strategies to get the government to keep its promise to hold elections and not arrest those who wanted to participate in a real democracy. But Thầy Tam Châu did not respond. He stayed in India for several more weeks before going to Bangkok. Thầy Chi Quang continued trying to contact him, urging him to return to help solve the problem because the government had arrested all the best Buddhists in central Vietnam. But Thầy Tam Châu did not come back. And Thầy Chi Quang became so frustrated at the government's rep- repression that he decided to fast until all those detained were released from jail. After 77 days, he began fainting and was hospitalized, but he continued to fast altogether for more than 100 days. I was worried that Thầy Chi Quang might die. 
on the 19th day of his fast. A tip-hit sister, Chen Duan, and I went to Zuitan Hospital. Even though we knew that the police would arrest anyone who approached Tai Chi Guang, Chen Duan asked to have a gynecological problem diagnosed by the physician on duty. And then she slipped past the guards into Tai Chi Guang's room and passed him a letter from Tai Nhatang, begging him to stop fasting. But Tai Chi Guang continued his fast. A week later, I put on jeans and a t-shirt quite different from the traditional Vietnamese dress I usually wore, and coolly, even naturally, walked alongside a nurse right past the police guards into his room. As soon as I entered, I implored Tai Chi Quang not to die, saying, The entire younger generation of Buddhists is waiting for you to eat again and lead us to peace. Please, Give your body some food. The nurse chased me away, but in a few days, at the request of Thich Tinh Khit, the high patriarch of the UBC, Tai Chi Quang took some food and ended his fast. The effects of his 100-day fast made by made Tai Chi Quang very weak. He was held under house arrest during the Nguyễn Cao Kỳ, Nguyễn Văn Thiệu regime and is still under house arrest today by the communist regime. When Thầy Tam Châu returned to Vietnam, some young extremists were so angry at him that they shouted and held up banners that read, You must pay the debt of so many well-meaning Buddhists who took your advice and were killed or put in jail. The way they acted was too violent. One banner was even painted with blood and bones. And because of their unkind way, they forced Thay Tam Châu to sign with the government. I was too absorbed in my work with the peasants in the countryside and I did not join the 1966 demonstrations. It was only later that I heard about the attitude of those young people towards Tay Tam Châu, and I was sorry that I had not been there to propose alternatives to acting out of anger. We might have gone to Tay Tam Châu, for example, and given him reports of thousands of army officers from whom Nguyễn Cao Kỳ had discharged because they were pro-Buddhist. Reports of the names of those who died or were detained in jail and other information and then solemnly asked him to act as a monk for more than 40 years and therefore an expert in kindness and compassion when faced with such betrayal and injustice, surely he would have been moved. Unlike Tai Chi Quang, Tai Tam Chou was very diplomatic and he might have been able to skillfully change the situation for the better. But I was not there and my young friends helped polarize the situation with their confrontational demonstrations. As a result, 
the government hardened its position, and the vast majority of Buddhists began to openly oppose the government. When A. G. Moste, the General Secretary of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, had come to Vietnam in 1965 to demonstrate against the war, he met Thay Nhat Hạnh and liked him very much. In March 1966, Professor Robert Brown of the Inter-University Committee for the Debate on Foreign Policy and Professor George McCahin invited Thay to lead a seminar on Vietnam at Cornell University. Alfred Hasler then invited this frail young Vietnamese monk to tour the U.S. following the Cornell conference to explain to the American people the true experience of the Vietnamese people who were not interested in communism or anti-communism but who just wanted the bombs to stop falling on them. By the spring of 1966, the war had escalated dramatically and many of our pioneer villages had been bombed. So Thay decided to accept these invitations to go to America where he felt that so many roots of the war were. By the time, he could see that many of the roots of the war were in the West. I drove him to the Saigon airport on May 2, 1966 and said goodbye assuming he would be gone for just a few weeks. On June 1st, Thay held a press conference in Washington, D.C. and released a five-point peace proposal. First, the United States should issue a clear statement of its desire to have the Vietnamese people have a government genuinely responsive to Vietnamese aspirations. Second, the United States should end all bombing. Third, the United States military should limit its actions to a purely defensive role. Fourth, the United States should convincingly demonstrate its intention to remove its troops over a specified period of months. Fifth, The United States should offer reconstruction aid free of ideological and political strings. That same day, he was denounced on Saigon Radio, in the newspapers, and by the Thieu Ghi government as a traitor. From this point on, it was not safe for him to return to Vietnam. He decided to come home after his speaking tour anyway at his own risk, but we in the School of Youth for Social Service backed him to wait. During Thay's absence, we had many problems. Cha Lok, a newly developed village in Guangxi, for instance, was bombed, and the School for youth of Youth for Social Service workers who lived there reported that there was an extremely high level of hatred suspicion and fear among the people. 
so they decided to remain in the village and help the peasants rebuild each house, sharing their difficulties and concerns. In this way, they regained the trust and faith of the local people, and then they also helped them rebuild a daycare center, a school, a medical center, and an agricultural cooperative. When the bombs came again, destroying all their efforts, fear, hatred, and despair were widespread. After several weeks, our friends gathered their courage and helped the villagers rebuild their houses, schools, and medical center again. Then another bombing reduced all their loving efforts to ash. After a fourth bombardment, it was hard for them to maintain their serenity. Everyone felt like picking up a gun and fighting, but by practicing meditation, looking deeply, they could see that using guns would only make things worse. So they did the work of rebuilding yet again in order to demonstrate their support, love, and care for those who suffered so intensely. Two months before Thay Nhat Hạnh had left to attend the forum at Cornell, a general assembly of all the student unions of Vat Hạnh University had met in the university auditorium to issue a call for peace which stated, It is time for North and South Vietnam to find a way to stop the war and help all Vietnamese people live peacefully and with mutual respect. Thầy brought that statement with him to Cornell. But a week after Thầy left, Thầy Ming Châu, the dean of the university, issued a statement dissolving the student union and nullifying the university's link with the School of Youth for Social Service. He even sent a copy of his statement to the national police. Then he told many supporters of the School of Youth for Social Service, I don't know whether Thay Nhat Hạnh is communist or not, but certainly Cao Ngoc Phuong is. In the context of Vietnam at that moment, calling someone communist meant killing him or her even without a weapon. Thầy Ming Châu often said that we must not mix up education with political work. But how could we educate young people to respect life while ignoring the killing of human beings? How could we teach the non-fear of Avalokitesvara in the Lotus Sutra if we ourselves were too afraid to use the word peace? I told my fellow students that there were two kinds of politics. Partition politics to gain power and fame for ourselves, and the politics of reconciliation to bring peace and happiness to the country. We should avoid the former. But how could we ignore the poor soldiers who had been drafted into the army to kill or be killed? Even at the risk of arrest or torture, we had to work for peace. Among the three branches of Van Hạnh University, 
the School of Youth for Social Service had the best organized group of students to allow the School of Youth for Social Service with me as president of the student union to remain linked with Phan Hạc University would have meant accepting Thầy Nhất Hạnh's direction of working for peace and that was risky for Thầy Minh Châu and the university. In my meditations, I came to understand that Thầy Minh Châu's motivation was fear of losing the university and I was able to accept him. Later, when the communists came to power in Saigon, I was not surprised to hear that he was among the first to cooperate with the new regime, ignoring all reports of human rights violations, again, because we should not mix up politics and religion. During the communist regime, Thầy Minh Châu and a number of other monks who have cooperated cooperated closely with the regime had have been able to continue translating sutras from Pali into Vietnamese. I understand the attitude and do not complain about them, but it is easier for me to understand the Buddha when he said, During 45 years of teaching, I did not say a word. <laughs>